from PRX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. Hello, I'm Terrence McKnight, the host of Evenings with Terrence McKnight on WQXR in New York. In this episode, as part of Studio 360's American Icon series, we're looking at the Migration series by the artist Jacob Lawrence. It's a familiar story and a very American story. A group of migrants flee poverty, violence, and repression to seek a better life. Willing to start over, they make trade-offs between the culture they left behind and the new world they have to embrace. Panel number 25. After a while, some communities were left almost bare. Typically, this narrative is told from the perspective of European immigrants, but it applies as well to the 6.6 million African Americans who migrated from the South to the North between 1910 and 1970. Panel number six. The trains were packed continually with migrants. As Isabel Wilkerson described them in her book, The Warmth of Other Sons. By their own actions, they did not dream the American dream. They willed it into being by a definition of their own choosing. They did not ask to be accepted, but declared themselves the Americans that perhaps few others recognized, but that they had always been deep within their hearts. The Great Migration changed American politics and culture. The painter Jacob Lawrence was one of the few artists to chronicle it. Jacob Lawrence was a lot of things, a historian, a teacher, a humanist, a philosopher. But Jacob Lawrence was not exactly what you might call a Southern Negro. Here's Lawrence in a 1993 interview for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Some have said my art is social commentary or it's protest. It couldn't be anything else if I grew up in the Harlem community and that was the source of my content. The Migration Series was created in Harlem, New York. It depicts Southern blacks migrating to Northern cities. However, its creator didn't venture South until after the work was completed. Jacob Armstead Lawrence was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey in 1917. His mother, Rosa Lee, was a domestic worker who had come from Virginia. It was in New Jersey where she met Lawrence's father, also named Jacob, who came from North Carolina. Lawrence was the oldest of three siblings, and soon after his birth, the family moved to Easton, Pennsylvania, where Lawrence's sister Geraldine was born. Lawrence's father worked as a cook on the railroads, spending large amounts of time away from his family. And this prolonged absence would cause Lawrence's parents to separate. With a pregnant Rosalie taking the children to Philadelphia and giving birth to Jacob's brother, William, in 1924, a struggling mother of three, Rosalie thought best to move to New York City and build a life for her young children. She would leave them in foster care. That was a common practice at the time. It would take six years before 13-year-old Jacob would join her in Harlem. It was a place that some refer to as the spiritual center of black America. You, you knew the shoemaker. You knew the, uh, the ice man. Here's Lawrence in conversation with historian Henry Louis Gates in 1995. 
You knew the minister, you knew these people, and you knew a person like the uh, fellow that used to run up and down the street uh, throwing imaginary hand grenades. <laughs> he was, he was, he, he was a uh, shell shock veteran of World War <laughs> One. But the community knew him. The community sort of took took care of him, and he was a part of the community. So this was all a part of this community. It was a sense of belonging. I belong to the community. The community belongs to me. Here's to Harlem. They say heaven is paradise. If Harlem ain't heaven, then mouse ain't mice. That's Ozzie Davis reading one of Langston Hughes' essays, A Toast to Harlem. Heaven is a state of mind, I commented. It sure is mine, said Simple, draining his glass. From Central Park to 179th, from river to river, Harlem is mine. During the 1920s, voices like Hughes, along with contemporaries, County Cullen, Zora Neale Hurston, Gene Toomer, catapulted the Harlem community onto the national stage. It's really a, a catalyst for what historians call the New Negro Movement. Historian and civil rights professor... Kevin Gaines. And the New Negro represented this militant political and social movement with uh, demands for equality. You had, as part of the New Negro movement, black nationalism. And black nationalism was led by the movement organized by Marcus Garvey, who was a Jamaican immigrant. It brought together African Americans in the South with black people in the Caribbean, with migrants from the Caribbean. We are men. We have hopes, we have passions, we have feelings, we have desires just like any other race. The cries raised all over the world of Canada for the Canadians of America, for the Americans of England, for the English of France, for the French of Germany, for the Germans. Do we take it unreasonably we, the blacks of the world, should raise the cry of Africa for the Africans? The Negro is a man. We represent the new Negro. His back is not yet against the wall. We do not want to... You have black socialism of African-American socialists and labor leaders like Hubert Harrison and A. Philip Randolph. Around 100,000 African-Americans fought in Europe in World War I or were stationed in Europe in World War I. And they're meeting folks from the French colonies in West Africa. They're, they're meeting Senegalese blacks. English-speaking African-American intellectuals like Langston Hughes and Jesse Fawcett are meeting French-speaking black intellectuals and activists. Blacks who migrated to urban centers like Harlem were more readily able to unify politically and culturally. So with the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1868, African-American men could vote and hold elective office throughout the South. There's this tremendous white Southern Democratic backlash with the political representatives of the former plantation slave-owning class really trying to thwart African-Americans' aspirations. And it, it culminates in a movement from roughly 1890 to the early 20th century in which African-American men are barred from voting. And the Great Migration happens at this low point in African-American politics. While the country was still debating over what it owed newly freed slaves, Southern blacks were confronted with more pragmatic obstacles. My name is Spencer Crew. 
We're at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and I'm the acting director of this museum. Conditions in the South are getting more difficult for agriculture. There's a flood that takes place in the South that pushes a lot of African Americans who are tenant farmers and sharecroppers off the land. There's also the uh, attack of the boll weevil, which is tax cotton, which is the primary crop. That that has a downspin. The chance to be economically stable for sharecroppers becomes more and more difficult. Sharecropping is a difficult situation anyway because it's hard to make enough to pay the rent in, in, in quotations that you're having to pay. And then you add to that the rise of segregation Jim Crow laws and lynching and things like that. But with the war and with war industries opening up, and with many whites being recruited to fight in the military, positions opened up. Again, not the best ones, but those that at least were job opportunities. So people were moving north to take advantage of these new opportunities. But by 1930, that sense of blackness, of humanity, equality, of recognition, that became the centerpiece of the cultural ethos of Harlem. The term New Negro was coined by writer-philosopher Alain Locke, who believed an understanding of African history could unify Harlem residents regardless of origin. And in Harlem, Lawrence found a community standing on its own, not being completely absorbed in the broader culture, but creating culture, creating meaning, creating art. If only Jacob Lawrence actually knew what art was. Culturally vibrant though it may have been, Harlem was still overwhelmingly poor. The Great Depression had hit 1929, and by 1933, many were destitute. Without jobs, we had no money. Hunger drove our people to the bread lines. Anxiously, we waited, waited for some sign of better days. Then came the federal government's work program. The Works Progress Administration spent $11 billion, employing 3 million people between 1935 and 1942. While most of the money went to construction and civil engineering projects, the WPA also established a creative division called the Federal Arts Project. It also established more than 100 art centers all over the country. Jacob Lawrence's mother sent him to one of those art centers. It was an after-school arts program called Utopia Children's House. His first teacher was Charles Halston, who is a, a really good painter, academically trained, you know, got a degree at, at Columbia Teachers College. Dr. Patricia Hill has written several books on Jacob Lawrence. He recognized that Lawrence had a, a genius for design, and so he didn't teach him academic drawing. He just let him do what he could do, and that is this wonderful design. Lawrence's interest and talent began to flourish. He experimented with line and color by copying the patterns of hand-woven rugs, and he learned to see art everywhere. Here's Lawrence conducting an oral history interview for the Seattle Public Library in 1987. I remember being greatly influenced by the, the, uh, the throw rugs that uh, the people in the community used to use to decorate their homes. And uh, these were uh, uh, taken after the Persian rugs and the arabesque designs and things of that sort. And I was greatly influenced by that. And also my mother 
like so many of the people of her age um, used to decorate their homes in all sorts of patterns and colors. And I didn't realize it then, but I think uh, I was greatly influenced by that. Lawrence began to paint modern Harlem, the immediate, the intimate, and the profane. I'd hear the street corner orators speak about revolution, speak about Toussaint Louverture, the black liberator of Haiti. Very fiery speakers. Lawrence painted Street Order's audience in 1936. He was 19 years old. In the painting, a group of men and women gaze upward at an order who is climbing a ladder to a platform. In 1934, Austin became the first black director of a WPA arts workshop. Located at 306 West 141st Street, the 306, as it would come to be called, held classes on sculpting and painting. Lawrence worked as an apprentice to Austin, who also designed and oversaw a mural project for the nearby Harlem Hospital. Jacob Lawrence rented a corner in the studio where he would paint. The 306 was also the meeting place for many Harlem intellectuals. Here's Patricia Hills. Sort of like, almost like salons, you know, where just the conversation was about talk and culture and poetry. Folks like Langston Hughes, Ralph Ellison, Aaron Douglas, Elaine Locke would engage in spirited discussions. Lawrence would sit back, taking it all in. During this time, his interest in epic narratives also peaked. As an assistant, he would help Charles Austin apply his completed sketches onto the bare white walls of Harlem Hospital. Fascinated with the scale and drama of the murals, this work would also expose Lawrence to other muralists like Jose Orozco and Diego Rivera. Charles Austin had watched Diego Rivera as he painted his famously controversial mural at Rockefeller Center, which featured trade workers, and it was destroyed for supposedly being too sympathetic to communism. In addition to the bold use of color, Lawrence was struck by Rivera's committed engagement with social issues. When Lawrence was not at the 306, he attended classes at the studio of famed sculptor Augusta Savage. Her Harlem Art Center would become one of the largest in the nation. And it was here that Jacob met his future wife, Gwendolyn Knight. Gwendolyn, she was actually a few years older than Lawrence, you know, a very beautiful woman. And she had gone to Howard University, but because of the Depression had left, gone back to Harlem. Born in Bridgetown, Barbados in 1913, Gwendolyn, like Jacob, became a foster child when she was seven years old. I think if you know a little bit about Jacob, I think by the time he was 13 or 14, he, he and his mother didn't get along. He was a foster child when he went to Harlem. So Gwen was, from her mother, given to a family to come to the U.S. because her mother thought that she could have a better life here. So in a sense, they were both orphans. Barbara Earl Thomas is a Seattle-based visual artist. She met the couple when she was a graduate student. And when the couple grew old, she became their caretaker. So when Gwen and Jacob, you know, finally got together, they were very much on their own. And I feel like people were older quicker. I mean, this long childhood thing we have going on now, 
that just, you know, that just wasn't happening. <laughs> you know, you know, when you're 15 years old and you're 16 years old, you were making your way. Augusta Savage also recognized Lawrence's talent. And once she found out that he had dropped out of school to focus on painting, she made sure it wouldn't be in vain. This has been 1937. She took me down from the offices of the project and they said I was too young, but she they advised her to bring me back next year. I went back to Harlem, I completely forgotten about it, wasn't thinking of it anymore. But she had not forgotten. And she took me back and signed me up. I was signed on the Easel Project. The almost comically bureaucratic name Easel Division referred to the group of artists who paint conventional canvas works for public spaces throughout the city. Which I was obligated to do, turn in two paintings every six weeks. And the, the salary was a fabulous salary at that time, $23.86 a week, which was a lot of money then. This was a major turning point in Lawrence's career. Here again is Patricia Hills. He was very involved with showing the history of African-Americans in this country and also like Toussaint Louverture in Haiti. When Lawrence was 20 years old, he was inspired to paint Toussaint Louverture from conversations he overheard at the 306. Black history had never been a major part of his formal education, so he immediately immersed himself in research. And it became clear that a single painting wouldn't do justice to the story he wanted to portray. I mean, people don't know that, that revolutionary history, but the, the Haitian army fought on the side of the U.S. against the British during the Revolutionary War. He wanted to bring out that history. Lawrence would choose a serial format and create a work focusing on the mistreatment of Haitians by colonial farmers, as well as Louverture's struggle to educate himself fight military occupational forces, and achieve independence for his country. Completed in 1938, Lawrence's series, The Life of Toussaint Louverture, consists of 41 panels. In many ways, this series would serve as a template for the more astonishing works yet to come. He was a historian as well as an artist, and it was very important to him to get his message and get the teachings of history across so that's why he decided to do series so that he would have captions to each one of the pictures so that they were they're almost like storyboards for a movie you know in which you you know you go from scene to scene and he weaves them together and their rhythms really returning back to what Elaine Locke was calling artists to do in the 1920s and 30s Melanie Harvey is a professor of art history at Howard University. Mining that African legacy and using tools and strategies uh, from that period to address our contemporary moment. So we see figurative representations of African Americans and powerful stances. Going back to the New Negro movement in terms of revising uh, African American representation, the fact that in the 19th century there was a whole visual program uh, led by individuals like not only Richard Allen, the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest African American denomination uh, in the states, but also individuals like Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, and 
Sojourner Truth, literally using their representation as a way of redefining mm. an identity nationally, right? Um, so in some ways, we can think about even what Jacob Lawrence grows to do, right, as uh, building on this kind of visual strategy of correcting misrepresentations, histories uh, of oppression. Lawrence followed his Toussaint Louverture series with additional works depicting the lives of black figures, including Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. But his most ambitious work was yet to come. By 1939, Jacob Lawrence had already completed two major series on black heroic figures, Toussaint Louverture and Frederick Douglass. He was at work on a third that covered the life of Harriet Tubman, and now he began contemplating a new subject. Among the many supporters of Jacob Lawrence's latest work was professor and philosopher Elaine Locke. By this time, Locke's support had already gotten all 41 panels of the Louverture series in an exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art. At just 21 years of age, Lawrence was featured in Newsweek. And in a letter to Locke, Lawrence described his latest ambition. My proposed plan is to interpret in a sufficient number of panels, 18 by 12, the great Negro migration north during the World War. On April 17, 1940, Jacob received the news he had been selected to receive a fellowship of $1,500 from the Rosenwald Fund to complete his ambitious work on the Great Migration. I, I rented my, my first studio, which was, I think it was 33 Western and 25th Street, in the heart of the Harlem community, which was between Lenox and uh, 7th Avenues. And I paid $8 a month for a loft. And uh, that was my first, uh, my first studio. And Gwen and I worked there together. As with the previous three projects, Lawrence didn't start with sketches, but with research. The Great Migration marked a departure from his earlier work. Here's Patricia Hills. After Harriet Tubman, he decided that rather than focus on the lives of unique individuals, he was going to focus on the people. You know, that it was a people's movement, the migration. It wasn't one single person who was the leader. Lawrence spent endless hours at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the 135th Street Public Library. He studied the literature of W.E.B. Du Bois, black historian Carter G. Woodson, and Emmett J. Scott, whose book, Negro Migration During the War, served as a backbone to the series. The final result was pretty much the inverse of how painters usually work. Rather than making a painting and anguishing over what to call it, Lawrence did just the opposite. He anguished over the titles for paintings before he even did preliminary sketches of them. Panel number two. The World War had caused a great shortage in Northern industry, and also citizens of foreign countries were returning home. Well, the captions were very important to him because it was a history lesson. He wanted people to look at the caption and look at the picture and see the relationship. 
Panel number four. The Negro was the largest source of labor to be found after all others had been exhausted. Panel number five. The Negroes were given free passage on the railroads, which was paid back by Northern industry. It was an agreement that the people brought north on these railroads were to pay back their passage after they had received jobs. And sometimes there is a close relationship, and sometimes there is a more tenuous relationship. But basically, he wanted you to think about it. He wanted you to read the captions. Panel number 41. The South that was interested in keeping cheap labor was making it very difficult for labor agents recruiting Southern labor for Northern firms. In many instances, they were put in jail and were forced to operate incognito. He wanted the pictures to be shown in order. That was very important to him. He has 20 works that are about the South. Panel number 13. Due to the South losing so much of its labor, the crops were left to dry and spoil. 20 about the North, where the migrants went to. Panel number 49. They also found discrimination in the North, although it was much different from that which they had known in the South. And then 20 about the struggles of getting there, of marching, of getting on the trains, of waiting for the trains, of looking out the windows from the trains. Panel number 12. The railroad stations were at times so overpacked with people leaving that special guards had to be called in to keep order. It's a wonderful series, and if you look at it from left to right, you know, it goes the rhythms of horizontal and vertical, and then another vertical, and then another horizontal. And there is a really rhythm there that almost be like a call and response. As he's weaving together in the 60 panels, so it's really a beautiful series, the way it was orchestrated. Next, Lawrence translated his captions into studies on paper, which evolved into sketches on his final hardboard panels. Assisted by his then-girlfriend Gwendolyn Knight, Lawrence brushed several layers of rabbit skin gesso over hardboard panels and sanded them smooth. The gesso was notorious for leaving tiny air bubbles, which, when painted, left white streaks throughout the painting. Lawrence didn't paint one painting at a time. He painted all 60 in stages at the same time and completed the work one color at a time. I painted them color by color, running the blacks through, running the reds through each panel. I did this in order to maintain a unity and not have, not finish one panel, then go to the next, then go to the next, because the, my style might have changed, or my approach might have changed. Panel number 37. The Negroes that had been brought north worked in large numbers in one of the principal industries, which was steel. By the way, I think of this as not 60 works, but one work consisting of 60 panels. Panel number 19. There had always been discrimination. So I did this to... Uh, um, to maintain the unity, the spirit of what I was dealing with. Panel number 44. Living conditions were better in the North. So that's how the, the work was developed. Jacob Lawrence is known as a master of tempera, a fast-drying water-based paint used mostly by illustrators and sign painters. Tempera is cheap and easily achieves bold opaque colors through layering. 
And while it's great for photographic reproduction, the speed with which it dries and its flat application makes it hard to convey nuanced effects like shadows and shading. It's a quality that highlights Lawrence's brilliant use of distorted angles and abstract compositions. I just see, like, moves. Like, his moves are just great. Derek Adams is a visual artist in New York. Like, how he implements certain, like, new color in every painting. Like, he has this very basic and very recognizable palette that he uses throughout his work. But every now and then he'll throw in a certain type of pattern or color that is just very unique to the narrative of that particular piece. One of the panels depicts a woman sitting at her kitchen table, exhausted, with her head down. Panel number 16. Although the Negro was used to lynching, he found this an opportune time for him to leave where one had occurred. To me, when I look at those paintings where the table is like pretty tilted in perspective, that almost looks like it's like leaning into your viewpoint as a, um, a person standing in front of the work, I feel like his tables are our invitation to be a part, a participant. And like even this painting we're looking at right now, this woman leaning on the table, it almost like you can lift her up and say like, come on girls, go to bed or something. You rarely see paintings of Jacob where Jacob has done where the figure is addressing you directly. It's really more about you being able to glimpse, have a glimpse into a certain reality that you may or may not be necessarily connected to as a viewer. And so you become a witness in some ways. And so that's what I like about the work a lot is that it's not really about you, the subject, acknowledging you. It's about you acknowledging the experience of the subject through their reality. So their posturing to me always seems more about the plight and the attitude of the black subject at the time. In the Migration series, Lawrence uses motifs such as trains, crossroads, ladders, for example, to bring depth and continuity to the series. Movement, these are symbols of movement to me. Ladders represent the big cities, cities like New York. And uh, uh, I know it was fascinating when we arrived in 1930, my family, seeing these fire escapes and seeing six-story buildings, I'm sure I... I saw these things in Philadelphia too, but they didn't mean as much to me. And here I would see this pattern over and over again, beautiful pattern. And um, uh, all through my paintings, not only in the migration series, I use the latter motif. Mm-hmm. And I use it to, to direct the eye, I use it as part of the uh, uh, composition. Number three. In every town, Negroes were leaving by the hundreds to go north and enter into northern industry is the story of my family. Alicia Hall Moran and her husband Jason Moran are musicians whose work explores the legacies of the black experience. There are people, there are birds, there is barren land and pure blue sky. The people have luggage under their arms and they're mid-stride. The triangle shape they make, the pyramid shape. The migration of birds <laughs> does <laughs> incorporate that first bird in the front, breaking the air, opening the space, and then the next two taking on some of that burden, and then the air 
opening up for the ones in the back to rest, and then they will take turns being in front. And so I think the family, the people being in such a triangle, one that reaches up towards the sky, like we want more. Mm -hmm. We're going left in the country or right, but this is to take a step up. It's a vertical prayer for ourselves. And to be paralleled by the birds in this way, but the bird is the farthest out front, is so beautiful. Mm. Like we're not alone and that we are wanting the most natural of things Mm -hmm. and that if we do like the birds do, we cannot go wrong. We might die, but we will not be wrong. This is 45, and this is one of my favorites because it's so optimistic. Panel number 45. They arrived in Pittsburgh, one of the great industrial centers of the North, in large numbers. You know, you have the the black family sitting in the railroad car. They're looking out the window at industry. You can see industry with those big chimneys and the smoke kind of pouring out. And there's a little baby there. Babies are also often symbolic of the new future. And then they have this basket of food, you know, sort of on on, on that on that ledge there, which, uh, you know, the, the basket of food is sort of symbolic that, you know, there's going to be more food, you know, it's like a cornucopia, you know. And, uh, and they're looking, they're smiling, you know, the man on the right is smiling down at his child. You know, the one I really like is that one of those stairs that are going up to kind of a sky. Panel number 46. Industries attempted to board their labor in quarters that were oftentimes very unhealthy. Labor camps were numerous. Barbara Earl Thomas. There's not even a person in it. There are these stairs that start out large at the bottom and get really narrow when they go to the top. And then there's just a door and the sky. And I love that one because he used those same stairs, you know, when he made the Olympic poster. I can't remember what year he did that. He has a, a track that the guys are running around. And it's the same stair that's wrapped around. So, you know, he took that design element, flattened it, and made it go around in this and turned it into a track. So I love it when I find things that are kind of reused images in his work. Once the series was completed, gallerist and businesswoman Edith Halpert arranged to see the migration series in person. She was so struck by the series that she had the panels couriered to the Time and Life building to Deborah Calkins the assistant art director of Fortune magazine. Lawrence received news a few weeks later that Fortune intended to include 26 of his panels in the magazine's November 1941 issue. So Edith arranged a special viewing of the work that November 3rd. The larger scale exhibition she planned would take place in December, a series she was calling American Negro Art. Meanwhile, Jacob Lawrence and Gwendolyn Knight were married Having never even been to the South, they took a trip to New Orleans. Edith wrote to Lawrence, asking whether he was interested in selling the pieces individually and to set a price for the entire series. Lawrence made it clear that he had no intention of breaking up the series in a cell. No, no, he he was very resistant to having it broken up, and they, they had to talk him into say, look, these are two major museums. It was conceived as a single story and should remain as such. They settled on $2,000 for the series, about $36,000 in today's value. 
At the same time that the images were published in Fortune magazine, Edith Halpert began showing the work in her gallery. Halpert's plan was to stage an opening that would be a grand event, including a performance by blues guitarist Josh White and the Harlem Highlanders. The guest list included Paul Robeson, photographer Carl Van Vechten, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and Dr. David Levy, and his wife Adele. They were trustees of the Museum of Modern Art. Halpert aimed to create a Negro art fund to give grants to black artists and exhibitions of their work in museums and elsewhere. She was also gearing up to ask New York dealers to add black artists to their rosters. The plans for the big opening were falling into place, but then just a day before the opening, on December 7th. Hello, NBC. This is KGU in Honolulu, Hawaii. We have witnessed this morning the distant view, a great battle off Pearl Harbor, and a severe bombing off Pearl Harbor by enemy planes, undoubtedly Japanese. As a result of Pearl Harbor, all of the dealers backed out of this idea of taking one uh, uh, black artist onto its roster. They weren't taking any artists at that time. In fact, they were cutting back. Edith Halpert was the only one who went through with the original idea, and I was that artist selected. The opening was still on. Among those who attended, Alfred Barr, the director of the Museum of Modern Art, as well as Duncan Phillips, a philanthropist and collector who was beginning to assemble one of the country's first modern art collections. He had spoken about going to see the important African-American art show that Halpert was organizing in her gallery, the Downtown Gallery. Elza Smithgall is a senior curator for the Phillips Collection. He is clearly very taken with the panels because we soon learn that he's arranging to have Halpert send them to the Phillips for an exhibition to open in February, the very next month. Before the exhibition even had a chance to open, however, MoMA had already decided that they wanted to buy half the series. And so that sort of hastens the need for a decision from Duncan Phillips. And so Edith Halpert is, you know, writing a letter furiously to Marjorie, who was the assistant director. So the letter comes to Marjorie asking if they would like to buy the other half. And so it's Halpert who comes up with this idea. It's totally Halpert, the savvy dealer. But he, you know, she sees that. When Alfred Barr, the director then at MoMA, came to see the work, he was really excited. I said, Duncan Phillips comes and sees it. He's very excited. And there's a third player in the mix I want to mention, and that is Adele Levy. Adele Levy was the daughter of Julius Rosenwald, the creator of the fund that had actually underwritten the creation of the Migration Series. She was also on the sponsorship board for Edith Halpert's event featuring the work. A pretty savvy move on Halpert's part. But the long story is that she is interested in, you know, MoMA acquiring the series and being that she can afford to acquire it, chooses to buy it and gift it, the half, to MoMA. 
So they have a wonderful opportunity here to have this member of their board, great supporter of Lawrence, buy it for them. So she will be a great stimulus for then the moment that I said where they come to Phillips. So then the question is, well, how do you divide this series? Seeking to keep the potential cell alive, Edith Halpert made an interesting proposition. We can do it one of two ways. We can take the series and divide it down the middle, so 1 to 30, and then 31 to 60. Or we can do the odd panels for the Phillips and the even panels for MoMA. They understood why that really was a better way to more authentically represent the series in that the series starts in the South to tell the story of this great migration. Panel number one. During the World War, there was a great migration north by Southern Negroes. And it's only at the midpoint of the series that Lawrence shifts and we move north, just as the migrants move north. Panel number 31. After arriving north, the Negroes had better housing conditions. By the middle of the series, his story will shift, and we start to see the migrants. They're at the train again, and they're looking at Pittsburgh and through the window of the train, the smokestacks. And so you cannot imagine telling a complete story without seeing some aspects of what was unfolding in the South and some in the North. So therefore, you really do need to have the odd and even split. The other would never be true to trying to capture this important story. And the other little twist is that there was a panel, 46. There was a particular panel Adele apparently expressly loved. You know, above all, she loved them all, but clearly she had a favorite. Panel number 46. Industries attempted to board their labor in quarters that were oftentimes very unhealthy. Labor camps were numerous. And so the reason we weren't going to be given the even, for example, and MoMA the odd, was very much driven by making sure the half MoMA had included panel 46. So that's another little twist in the story. Jacob Lawrence was pretty pleased at the news to have two prestigious institutions purchase the work effectively keeping it together. After the migration series was purchased, it was arranged that the entire series would go on a two-year, 15-venue national tour, culminating in an exhibition at MoMA in October 1944. At just 23 years old, Lawrence was famous. He had produced a series that over the course of his 60-plus year career will be considered a masterwork. His signature style would inspire generations of artists for years to come. By the late 1950s, social issues arising from the civil rights struggle had given birth to the controversially titled Black Arts Movement. What do you mean when you say black art? We, we know what we mean when we say Asian art or uh, Native American art. There's a picture that comes to mind. It's right in a certain context, as long as it's understood. As, as long as you're communicating, this is black art because it was produced by a black person. Uh -huh. That's all right. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, another person might say, well, the form is Western. So how could it be black art? 
Lawrence was now teaching at Pratt Institute in New York, and well into a decade of mainstream acceptance into the art world, protest art became popular among emerging black artists, and to them the Migration series may have seemed a bit tepid. Take, for example, panel 15. Panel number 15. Another cause was lynching. It was found that where there had been a lynching, the people who were reluctant to leave at first left immediately after this. In this painting, Lawrence deliberately chooses to paint the effect lynching has on people left behind more than the act of lynching itself. We see a lone figure, hunched over in grief, just having lost a loved one, surrounded by a barren landscape underneath an empty noose. Lawrence's sparse composition and tendency to veer away from depicting the harsh conditions faced by blacks in literal terms was now suspect. And while Lawrence's critics may argue that these choices were made to make the work more palatable to whites, Derek Adams argues that Lawrence's choice reflects the exact opposite, that the work was explicitly made for a black audience. I don't think black people are any way have amnesia when it comes to turmoil and strife and horror. I think that we're constantly reminded. We're talked about, we talk about it in elementary school, middle school, it's on TV. Why do we need to see art with people hanging? I don't really think that art is necessary for us. I think it's for other people who are sympathizing with our struggle. When Derek Adams first encountered the work of Jacob Lawrence, it was a transformative experience, one that prompted him to follow Lawrence to New York with the hopes of becoming his student at Pratt Institute. That didn't pan out, but Derek continues to honor Lawrence's legacy, both in his studio and in his classroom. He points out the challenge of balancing beauty and socially responsible subject matter with his black students. The thing is about our practice, we are really concerned with form and content. Because that's what you have to learn in art school is form. Even if you don't have content, you have to learn how to make stuff. And most times, a lot of younger black artists focus more on content because they believe that they have to talk about something. Like an artist told me one time, an older artist said, as a black person, you know, America has given us a lot to talk about, a lot to make work about. It's up to us to decide what we want to pull out of that, what will empower us by doing it. So I'm always emphasizing that when I'm teaching, primarily with a black student, because that's an issue that it comes up pretty often, more so than any other student. It's about content and form. But I tell them all the time is that Anything you make is going to be talking about something, you know, like there's certain narratives that have been set in place and oppressive structure is one of the things that is pretty common. We look at you as a person who's been through stuff, even if you have not necessarily been through stuff, but you're a representative of that. Dirk Adams is a multidisciplinary artist, but like Lawrence, bold colors and a degree of abstraction are foundational to his work. Derek also uses the serial format to focus on the power and significance inherent in the normal lives of black people. I make what I want to see that I don't see in the world. I'm currently making a series called um, Style Variation. You still have power. Like again, the body, the black subject is, is a political subject and we bring politics with us and we bring power with us. So we don't have to own any particular thing in order to be relevant and powerful. You know, we are. I don't think that we have to focus as much on the oppressive structures around us as we do about the perseverance that we 
represent on a daily basis, you know, the fact that we're still here in the world based on all the things that's happened to us, it shows to me the most supernatural thing you can think about. Derek has made an installation that compiles 100 images from Lawrence's personal archive into a wallpaper that covers a room and includes his personal effects. Some images of him with celebrities, patrons, very broad, very dimensional. If I was going to be a part of the exhibition that I could tackle another area of Jacob's experience that was not known, it was not public. There were moments in these photographs that you can kind of see his humanity in a different way, laughing and meditative images of him just sitting at a table. And I also was granted permission to use his studio armchair that was, you know, tattered and, you know, very personalized to be kind of the, the anchor for the environment. And to me, as an artist, this was even more relevant than the paintings. We're getting back to making the works that reflect who we are. And I think Jacob was the kind of pioneer person that kind of gave us permission to say like, it's okay to make a painting of us just sitting in the living room. It's okay to make a painting of us in the classroom. Like he made those paintings, you know, in his 20s. Panel number 23, and the migration spread. In 2015, MoMA asked me to craft a musical event about the migration series. The result, the Migration Rhapsody. It was a collaborative performance from a community of artists who, like Lawrence, were committed to mining history and shaping new narratives around the Black experience. Everybody's shadow is Black. Okay. See, you're so deep. <laughs> Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> My collaborators included pianist Jason Moran and his wife, classical vocal performer Alicia Hall Moran. Jason first encountered the Migration series when he was 19. I think as a musician, you're jazz musician that plays piano and doesn't use lyrics at all. How do you then get to storytelling? Very rarely does it get discussed in improvisational language. How do you tell a story? But then when you go see the paintings and you see, you know, the captions on the side, you know, and then you watch the progression and then you watch the terror and then you watch the angles and then you watch the flatness that he's made these pieces, you know. And also they're intimate they're small pieces, and the series is extremely long. <laughs> it feels like you're listening to an opera, right? Like you're, you're watching this unfold, and you're not sure whose story is going to come up next in the next panel. The spirit of spontaneity is something that many folks from the South brought with them to the North, and it was a way of survival for them. It wasn't a gimmick. Being clever, thinking on your feet, it wasn't an artistic expression. That was a way of life. So in approximating Jason's experience with the work as a 19-year-old, I asked him to play in response to images from the series with no prior knowledge of what order they would appear. Panel number 51. In many cities in the North where the Negroes had been overcrowded in their own living quarters, they attempted to spread out this resulted in many of the race riots and the bombing of Negro homes. Panel number 50. Race riots were very numerous all over the North because of the antagonism that was caused between the Negro and white workers. 
Many of these riots occurred because the Negro was used as a strike breaker in many of the northern industries. Well, there's something that music does, and especially the piano, because it's an old instrument itself, then it can really switch gears very quickly. What I like is seeing how a color of a chord matches a, a color, the flatness of his black that he has on, on the painting, you know. Or are you then now the activity of the bird in the sky, right? Change the perspective of where you play from. Recently, Jason and Alicia have deepened their contributions to the migration narratives with works like Two Wings, The Music of Black America and Migration a concert series exhibiting both contemporary spoken word and original music, which they played at Carnegie Hall. In preparation for the series, Jason and Alicia underwent a process echoing that of Jacob Lawrence. We've read, we've reread Isabel Wilkerson's profoundly explosive documentary novel, The Warmth of Other Suns, a book that my mother handed me many years before and had said, oh, this explains our family. Read it. Chickasaw County, Mississippi, late October, 1937. Ida Mae Brandon Gladney. The night clouds were closing in on the salt licks east of the Oxbow Lakes along the folds in the earth beyond the Yalabusha River. And she came, and she read selections from the book that we all felt would highlight the music that we had chosen to share. It was very special, and in in a certain just kind of deep, career-long way, very monumental. You can hear my grandparents' voices in songs that I've written. Um, Literally, you can hear their voice. Similar to Lawrence, who painted the South before ever going there, Jason and Alicia sometimes wrote about experiences they've never personally lived. That probably, when you say this part about him never visiting the South, which is like we also talk about Kurt Vile never, you know, never getting to the South but loving to write about it. I love that you say that, Jason, because it reminds me also of the opera. From the beginnings of opera in America, you're having an audience full of people, wild majority of whom have never been to Austria and will Mm. never go. It doesn't mean they can't understand Nozze di Figaro. They don't speak Italian, but it doesn't mean they don't understand love and betrayal and passion and uh, buffoonery. But as a painter, he was able to put it down. That's the art. That's the amazing part. It's so real. It's so common. People walking with their bags, hoping for a better life, like praying, like, you know, going home or going somewhere, hoping, head dragging. You know, but then who can paint it? So you're only going to get only so many people who, when you go into a museum, you don't think, what is it? You think, ooh, that's me. Ooh, that's my grandmother. Ooh, that was me last night. Ooh. Then that's what this does. Panel number 59. In the North, the Negro had freedom to vote. In recent years, I've done a bit of research on my own migration history. Which brings me to this land, where my four parents were granted the opportunity to establish a home after being emancipated from slavery. You know, we're in a mid-county Mississippi, uh, which is borders uh, Louisiana. So we're right by the Louisiana um, state line. We are on the grounds of Mount Pilgrim Baptist Church in a mid-county. 
and um, there's a church cemetery over there. And on that side of the street, there's a family cemetery. This property that we're walking on came into my maternal family in 1878. There was a homestead, um, I guess, giveaway of land um, to former enslaved people. And my great-great-grandfather, a guy by the name of Jerry Steptoe, born in 1853, he and his wife, Anise, who was born in 55, they acquired 79 acres of land right here. But this is, for me, is where it started, man. This is, this is the legacy piece. This is the first property that I could identify that we own coming out of emancipation. For me, man, on this side of the Atlantic, this is where my story begins. My great-great-grandfather, Jerry Steptoe, was emancipated in 1888, got 80 acres of land. Years later, his land was given to his grandson, E.W. Steptoe. E.W. was literate, he owned land, two requirements that still made the right to vote elusive for many black Southerners. E.W. was granted the right to vote, but given the fact that his neighbors and relatives didn't have that same right, he made it his duty to help the people in his community, to help them become landowners, to help them attain that right to vote. So he and my grandfather, Lewis, acquired hundreds of acres of land by the 1940s and began selling the land, an acre, two acres here and there, to black folks who were unable to get bank loans. So, you know, my earliest days of remembering coming down here, I was probably, uh, probably about five years old. And I remember that because my grandfather, man, was such an influence on me, and he just was just so, you know, he had a bunch of acres, and I would just say, Grandpa, Where's, where's your property in? He said, as far as you can see. That way, that way, that way, and that way, as far as you can see. And when he would leave, I would try to walk it, you know. I'd just be walking through the woods. My mother would be nervous because there were snakes out there, I guess. I didn't care, man. It was my grandfather, so I just felt safe. And I thought I was him. And I remember going to school as a child, going to elementary school, and saying that my name was Louis Stepter. And my teacher called my mother confused, saying, yes, Terrence is saying that his name is Lewis. And she didn't understand what was going on. And my grandfather would tell me, you know, he'd tell my mother, when, when this boy grow up, he's going to take care of this place. He's going to take care of the place. For that, it was like he put this huge crown above my head. You know, I'm Lewis Stepter. I didn't know all of what he had done, but I knew it was important. You know, I knew that as far as I could look in all these directions, it was his property. I knew that these people around there had such respect for him. And for him to look at me as an eight-year-old, that's it. At the same time, both my parents migrated to Cleveland in the 1950s. My father decided he wanted to go to seminary. That's where I was born. While all my mother's siblings followed suit to places like Cleveland, and my family went to Chicago, my grandparents stayed put. He worked with EW, and they established that NAACP chapter, and they helped fight for voting rights right there in that community in Liberty. 
Here is E.W. greeting Bob Moses, who came down there from Harlem as leader of a voter rights registration drive in Mid County. It's in 1963. I do think that every citizen in the Mid County should participate in an election. And I hope and trust that I will have the privilege to vote once or twice in my life. After my grandfather's death, the land was passed down to my mother and fell into a bit of disrepair. Eventually, we were able to convince her to pass ownership of the property down to myself and my siblings so we could wrap our arms around it and take care of it as a family. This is Mount Sinai Baptist Church, or as they say down here, Mount Sinai. <laughs> this is where my grandfather, Lewis, was uh, a deacon. This is where he's buried, out in the church cemetery here, my grandmother and some of my uncles. Let's go check them out. I usually come say hello. This is where I come to solve all my issues, talking to him. I sat out here on his grave, just sitting right there, looking down towards the property and just communing with these people, man, with my grandparents asking them what they wanted me to do, about school, about marriage, about life, about the property. And I would just sit and wait on the answer. He wouldn't always answer me right away. Sometimes he won't say anything, you know? And I would just come back. My grandfather made his living in pulpwood. Pine is Mississippi's number one export. And those who plant pine trees know that it's like a 25-year investment. You cut after the first 12 years and maybe six years later, but then you do the full cut 25 years. So these trees grow straight up towards the sky. And that wood goes to make paper and paneling, flooring. My grandfather owned pulpwood trucks, and I'd go out there with him every summer, you know, with the chainsaws and his crew, you know, hearing them holler, timber! That's real, man, out in those woods. So as I was sitting there waiting for my grandfather to give me some sign as to what I should do with the land, it occurred to me, do what he was never able to do. So right now, over there on that property, more than 40,000 trees planted on 45 acres of land. I worked with the state of Mississippi, who provides a percentage of the cost for planting, but they require that the trees reach maturity before being sold. This, no doubt to me, was an intimidating idea, but I always think about how difficult it must have been for them, given the Jim Crow laws, given the Klan being so rampant in this part of the state. My mother used to tell stories about my grandfather and E.W. sitting out on the porch, man, with rifles, just in case somebody tried to run them off this property. So for me, given what I know now, I have no excuse not to be able to come down here and work with the state and work with the community and continue that legacy that has been a part of my family since 1865. You know, I knew about him purchasing this, this land in, in Jim Crow. I knew that story. I knew about him holding on to the land, you know. I knew about black folks losing their land. So I thought any hurdle that I had to jump was significantly less than what he did. So I figured I could do something. And I just wanted to do what he did. So I wanted to do that. 
And the trees just seemed like something we could do as a, in honor of him, since he worked with trees all of his life. Panel number 27. Many men stayed behind until they could bring their families north. Panel number 30. In every home, people who had not gone north met and tried to decide if they should go north or not. You know, I, I don't own property in New York City. But here, it's like I know that my mother played on this property. I know she walked this land. I know that my parents got married right over there on those stairs over there in 1951. You know, I don't feel like you know, I'm stuck somewhere because I can come back here and exist. I'm looking out there and seeing all my ancestors, knowing the kind of work they did, the kind of sacrifices they made, listening to the wind and the smell of those trees. I mean, and I come out here, man, and I just feel peace. You know, I feel at peace. I don't have to do any better, man. I just want to do just as well. Panel number 60, and the migrants kept coming. By the time Barbara Earl Thomas met Jacob Lawrence, he was settled in Seattle as a tenured professor at the University of Washington. This was the 1970s, and though he became her mentor and graduate advisor, he and his wife Gwendolyn became her family. Jacob treasured his relationship with his wife. She had helped him create the Migration Series, and that catapulted them both onto a journey of art and discovery that spanned their 59 years of marriage. There was a really intense respect between them about their work, and he would say that, you know, part of, you know, how I help assess my work is having Gwen come and look at it when I'm ready to have her look at it. You know, and they would have a discussion, you know, would you like me to visit your studio? And she said, yeah, come over. I have something I want you to see. She'd take it out. She'd show it to him. And he would do the same. It wasn't a free-for-all. She couldn't just go into the studio and just start, you know, uh, leveling her opinion. That was not going to happen. Jacob Lawrence died in June 2000 of lung cancer. Jacob never asked me to take care of Gwen, but I felt like, you know, he wasn't there. So I'd get on the phone and I'd made it. I had a calendar and we had people here. I said, if you said you were really their friends and you always talk about, you know, how much you love them. Here's your big chance. People like our former mayor, Norman Rice and his wife, Constance, uh, Norman would come over and I said, OK, you've got Thursday evening. You come pick her up. She likes to go and be with people who are fun and exciting. And I said, you're one of her fun and exciting teams, so you guys come get her. So he would come get her, and people stepped up. They did their jobs. Gwendolyn Knight Lawrence died five years after her husband in 2005. Jacob and Gwen had always intended to move back to New York and live out their days in a place they both considered home, but that never happened. And so just as a migration had brought them together and set the course of their lives they would end up having another migration of sorts. After death. It just occurred to me, I said, it's time for you to go back. So I got their ashes, which I had their ashes, and I put them in my backpack. Then I had these friends, these really wonderful friends that, that also helped me take care of, Gwen and Jacob. 
the flowers, Bob and Mickey flowers. And they said, you can't do that by yourself. I said, well, okay. Then they said, so they decided that they were going to come with me. And then we were going to do a memorial for Gwen at um, St. John the Divine. So I said, now you take Gwen and I'll take Jacob and don't let them out of your sight. Don't put them down. This is not something we can leave on the airplane. So we took them back, took them to St. John the Divine, which is where they are now. In Harlem, less than 30 blocks from where Jacob, with Gwen at his side, painted the Migration Series. And then we had um, Ed Bradley spoke, and a number of people spoke at the, the memorial for Gwen and Jacob, and then they were interred there in the columbarium. So they made it back. Home. That's where they are. Our American Icon story on the Migration Series Paintings by Jacob Lawrence was produced by Carl Scott. Our associate producers were Rosalind Tortacilius and Lauren Francis. And our advisor was Siddhartha Mitter. Pedro Rafael Rosado was our engineer. The Migration Series captions were read by Karen Chilton. Special thanks to the Phillips Collection, the Museum of African American History, Toshi Regan, Lanny Burton, Dorothy Jones, Mary Jones, and Christopher Johnson. Andrew Adam Newman is Studio 360's senior editor. And our technical director is Sandra Lopez-Manzalve. Jocelyn Gonzalez is our executive producer. Studio 360's American Icons is supported by the National Endowment of the Humanities. And you can find all of our icon stories at studio360.org. I'm Terrence McKnight. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.